to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 together. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. As we've been making our way through Corinthians, we've been seeing that the, uh, this church had a lot of issues. Um, and uh, a lot of the issues sprung from the culture which the church was in. Corinth was known as a very wicked city, a very wicked place to live. And um, we're going to see uh, this morning another issue they had to deal with um, in their culture. In chapter 7, Paul dealt with uh, the, the principles that govern marriage and, uh, and not only uh, marriage, but uh, uh, the relationship between uh, the opposite sex as far as um, the unmarried and the widows go as well. Um, and the um, Corinthians needed a lot of guidance in that. They lived in a very sexually perverse culture. And so now Paul's going to deal with something that was actually connected to that same thing. Um, look at verse 1 with me of chapter 8. It says, Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things and we for Him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. However... There is not in everyone that knowledge. For some with consciousness of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble." Will you pray with me again? Lord, we come before you, Lord, and as we just read your word, we ask that you would apply it to our hearts. Lord, we ask that you would give clarity and, um, and, and purpose, Lord, to the message and, and, and that you would speak to our hearts. Father, your spirit would open our ears and open our eyes to see what you have for us this morning. Lord, we love you so much, and, and uh, we ask that you would just pour your spirit out upon us right now and move among us, Lord, and work in our hearts and our lives. We love you, we thank you, and we know it's because you first loved us. And in your name we pray, and we all said, amen. So the first verse, Paul addresses um, the issue that he's going to tackle. And, and in the first three verses, we actually find something uh, pretty interesting. Paul is asked this question. L look again in verse 1 with me. He says, now, concerning the things offered to idols... And we would almost expect right after Paul says that, concerning the things offered to idols, that he would say, it's okay or it's not okay, right? That he would tell us directly whether or not 
it's okay to eat the meat that was sacrificed in the temple of the idols. But do you notice he goes somewhere completely different to start? Look at verse 1 again. He says, Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. You see, in the Corinthian church, they had this issue, and, and it was a very uh, common issue as you went out from Jerusalem and out to the Gentile nations, because all of Rome had a lot of different gods. They had a lot of different um, idols that they worshipped. In fact, if you remember in uh, Acts chapter 17, when Paul was witnessing in Athens, he saw all these altars to all these different gods. And they had so many gods, and they were worried that they would miss one, so they actually had an altar that was called to the unknown god. <laughs> They had so many different gods and so many different things that they worshipped that they were afraid they missed one. So just in case, they made one to the unknown God. And Paul used that as his segue to say, hey, I want to tell you about the God you don't know. He's the creator of heaven and earth. And so what, what the issue that often arose in the church in Paul's day is, is that there was a lot of these people who were coming out of this system of idolatry. And imagine, put yourself back in Paul's day, right? You're in, you, you live in Corinth. It's a very corrupt city. You, you yourself were participating in the idolatry worship. And you often went into the idols' temples and you were a part. You saw the corruption that happened. And then all of a sudden, Paul brings the gospel, Right? And you get saved. You believe in Christ as your Lord and Savior. What's going to be the first thing you're going to want to do as you accept Christ? Get away from those idols, right? Get away from them. Get as far away from them as you can. But the problem with the Corinthian culture and the Roman culture just in general uh, was that their, their religious worship was so intertwined with their culture that all this meat that was sacrificed to the idols was often resold in the marketplaces. And sometimes you couldn't tell, sometimes you could. And they would often, the, when the city would have a feast, it would all be fed by, by the sacrifices that were given to these, these false gods. And if you were invited over to someone's house, it was very likely that they were going to serve you food that was at one time offered to an idol. And so I'm sure there were some people in that day that, that, that who, who came to Christ, they saw the corruption and, and, and the, the, the temple prostitutes and the things that happened inside of those uh, idols' temples, and I'm sure there were many of them who said, man, I want no part of this. Was that sacrificed to idols? We shouldn't eat of it. You shouldn't eat of it. It's wrong. It's all corrupted. We, 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 we need to find something else to eat. And you can see and you can understand how that would... Uh, um, be the conviction of many people who came out of that system. It's much like the person who was formerly an alcoholic. And what do they need to do? They need to just steer clear of it completely, right? They don't want to even sniff the stuff because it could take them back to those times of bondage and sin. 
And so I'm sure there was some, and, and they come to Paul with this question, what about things offered to idols? I'm sure there were some of them that in that day that were saying, you know what, it's fine, it's okay. And there were some of them saying, no, we shouldn't. So, so what's the issue? And Paul starts out in these first three verses, he doesn't give them a direct answer, but he addresses the question itself. Look again in verse 1 with me. He says, now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up but love edifies. So he says, we, we all know that we know things. We all have knowledge. We all have certain understandings of, of, of certain things. And yes, there is a right and there is a wrong. But notice what he says. He says, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. It's interesting, in the original Greek, at the, the word edify at the end of verse 1, you know what it literally means in the Greek language? It literally means to build up. So when you edify someone, when you, uh, you, your, your goal is edification to your brother and sister, your goal is to build them up. And so there's really a wordplay that Paul is using here. He's saying that knowledge, it puffs up, but what does love do? It builds up. And indeed, we know that if you've ever experienced love, and I'm sure you have, we know that when someone loves us or when we love someone else, isn't it an encouraging thing? Isn't it something that builds you up? Isn't it something that strengthens you? And you contrast that with the people who come in and just want to tell you what they know and the knowledge that they have, and all you seem to get is a lot of hot air, right? That word puff up, puffs up, that... Uh, Paul uses, it's used six times um, in the book of 1 Corinthians itself and one other time in Colossians. And every time it implies pride. It implies this arrogance. And so Paul says, hey, if all you're after is knowledge, your focus is wrong because knowledge puffs you up, but love will build up. Look at verse 2. He says that if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. Do you remember when you were in high school? Fred's shaking his head no. He can't remember for that far back. You remember when the dinosaurs? No, I'm just kidding. Um, but uh, uh, <laughs> remember when you were in high school and you looked at your parents and you thought to yourself, man, they just don't know a thing. And you thought you had it all figured out. Anybody have that? You know, you don't have to raise your hand. But we all tend to have that mentality at one time in our life or the other, don't we? That, that, hey, I've got this thing figured out. Well, what happens later in life as you grow? You realize that you didn't have a clue, right? You look back at that and you're like, wow, there's so much I didn't know. And this is even true in the scientific community. You know when the, when, and I don't know who it was, but the guy who discovered the atom... He named it the atom because the word atom means undivisible. In other words, they thought that the atom was the very smallest thing in existence. Well, you know what we found out? Atom is actually made up of other smaller parts. Do you know that, that those parts are so infinitesimally small that we, no one's ever witnessed them with the naked eye, but they can measure 
the, the magnetic forces and they can, they've discovered that the atom has protons, electrons, and neutrons. You know that they've actually now discovered, or they've theorized at least, that those electrons and protons and neutrons are made up of smaller pieces. And the, this term doesn't make any sense. It's kind of a random name. They call them quarks. But they're made up, each one of them has three of them. I was watching a documentary, and he was in this astrophysicist was talking about it, and he says, and one day we may find that quarks are made up of smaller things. But you see, every time we, we come upon a certain knowledge or a certain thing that we think we know, every time we have that attitude of, hey, I've got this figured out, one thing we can be certain of is, is that we haven't begun to understand what we should know. Look again at verse 2. And that's exactly what Paul's saying. If anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. If science and biology and physics confounds us, how much more, how much more will the God confound us who created those things? It's easy for us to learn something and think we've got it all figured out. But Paul makes it very clear that that's not the heart and that's not the attitude we should have. That knowledge isn't the focus. That if you, when you go and you study God's Word, how many, how many of you want to grow in the Lord? And when you go and you study God's Word, there's an aspect where you want to go to get to know Him, right? But why do you study God's Word? Because there's, I, I found in my life, I, I remember... I was in Bible college, we, we, I was in Jerusalem, it was my third semester, and we were talking a lot about eschatology. That is the study of end times, it's just a fancy word for the study of end times. And I began to really dig in and study and look at stuff, and I was, I was looking at all the prophecies, looking at Revelation, looking at everything, and you know what I found myself starting to do? I found myself in my relationship with the Lord, starting to become very cold and distant. I was studying God's Word. But my focus turned from getting to know the Lord to getting to know facts. And instead of growing in the Lord and in my relationship with Him, and instead of you being able to use what I was learning to encourage and build up my brothers and sisters, all I began to do was get puffed up with knowledge. And it became useless. And the Lord convicted me about that. He said, Josh, why are you going to my word? Are you going just to get knowledge? Are you going to my word because you love me and you want to know me more? Look at verse 3. Paul makes this declaration to them. He says, if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. So he's established knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if you think you know something, you don't really know. You haven't begun to understand it. And in verse 3, he says, but if you love God, this one is known by him. And it's almost as if Paul is saying at the end of verse 3, you want to know what knowledge really matters? It's the knowledge of God as to whether or not he knows you. That's what really matters. I'm sure you've heard the example before that any of us could go up to the White House gates and say, I know the president, but that won't get us in, will it? 
if the president comes out and says, I know you, or I know him or her, then we'll be welcomed in, right? And Paul is saying, listen, the knowledge that matters is it, it's not about what you know. It's not about all of these. It's not about pursuing the knowledge. It's about love. And it's about loving the Lord. And if you love God, you're known by Him. And so Paul completely redirects this issue because I'm sure there was some fighting going on in Corinth. We've already seen how carnal they are, right? How they're suing one another, <laughs> how they're arguing about things. And I'm sure there were some people on this side saying it is completely okay for us to eat the meat that was sacrificed to idols. And then there's other people who on the other side who were saying, no, we shouldn't. And Paul's going to come in and give the answer. But what he doesn't want to happen is he doesn't want there to be a further divide because when he gives the answer, he doesn't want the, per the people who are technically right to look at the people who weren't, and say, ha, see, I told you. Because that's usually what happens in an argument, right? It's just about winning the argument. I remember when I was a kid, I saw this cartoon of Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck. Remember the good old cartoon days? <laughs> and they get in this argument, and Bugs Bunny starts saying yes, and Daffy Duck starts saying no. Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. And at a certain point, Bugs Bunny flips it, right? He starts saying no, and then what does Daffy do? Because he knows he's in confrontation. He's not really pursuing truth, or he just knows he's in confrontation. So he starts saying no, and they, so it flips. Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. And Bugs Bunny finally says, fine, you win. We won't. And he says, yeah, we won't. And he goes, wait, what? I actually tried that trick on my brother. It worked. <laughs> But that's human nature, isn't it? When, when, when there's an argument, when there's conflict, it can quickly turn into who's right instead of how can we love each other? How can we pursue what would build up instead of what would puff up? And so Paul says in verse 3 again, if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. That's what counts. If you love the Lord, he, he, He's given you His Spirit, and He knows you, and He's working in you to will and to do for His good pleasure. And in verse 4, he, he begins to address the issue. He says, therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for Him, and, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. And so Paul says, here's, here's the principle, here's the truth. There's really only one God, and we serve Him. So just because something is sacrificed to an idol, just because something is, 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 uh, is killed in a temple and dedicated to something else, we know that that thing is really nothing. It, it's, it's not a God. It's not a real Lord. Even if they suppose it to be, it's not the true and living God. In verse 7, he goes on, However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some with consciousness of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food does not commend us to God. 
For neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. And so Paul says, hey, we know that this is true. We know there's only one true and living God. And that's the confession um, of both uh, what uh, Paul had just come out of, which was Judaism, and of Christianity, is, is that there's only one true and living God. Amen? There's only one. There's not these other gods that you really have to concern yourself with. They're false idols. They're not real. I, it, it's always baffled me. I know it's spelled differently and there may not be an actual connection, but the word idol, I-D-O-L, as far as a false god, sounds the exact same as I-D-L-E, idol, which is what your car does when it sits there running, right? It's sitting there running, but what is it doing? Going nowhere. And when you think of someone being idle, what are they doing? They're doing nothing, you know? And I just, I think that's an interesting connection in our language. And again, I don't know the, the etymology of it, if, if, if there is an actual connection, but idols sure are idle, aren't they? Because they're not real. And he says, but there are some, in verse 7, there's not, there are some who don't realize that. There is not in everyone that knowledge. For some with consciousness of the idol, and, and maybe it's because of their past, they look back at their past and they see um, and they remember what has been done. They've seen what happened in the temple of those idols and, and it just bothers them. They can't eat it um, without the consciousness of that idol. They can't put that behind them. And so they eat it as a thing offered to an idol. And what happens? Their conscious being weak is defiled. The issue of conscience is a, is a difficult one in, 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 uh, uh, in our faith, isn't it? Because there are many times when people use this excuse of conscience to excuse their sin. I've seen it happen. People do something that Scripture says blatantly is against God's will, and they say, well, I'm not convicted about it, so it must not be a sin. Or have you ever heard this? You walk up to a person and maybe you share your faith with them, and they're living in blatant, open sin, whatever it may be. And they say, don't worry about me. Me and God, we've got a deal. What are they saying? They're saying, I'm not convicted about it, therefore it's okay. So we need to first be sure that we understand the principles of God's Word when we talk about conscience. What does God say is good? Because can we as human beings be misled by our hearts? What does Scripture say about that? That the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Whoa, all things? Yes, all things. Who can know it? Proverbs says that there's a way that seems right into a man, but it leads to death. You better believe we can be deceived. Our conscience is not the plumb line for truth. But on these issues which God hasn't spoken directly about, such as the meat that was sacrificed to idols in this instance, what's the answer? Well, the answer is, is what is the Lord speaking to your heart for you? Do you feel like it would just be wrong to eat of it? Let me give a present day application. And I, we've talked about it before when we went through Romans. But, but a very common one in our culture, probably one of the biggest ones, is alcohol. The use of alcohol. Is it okay? 
If you're not convicted about it, you can have and you can consume alcohol. Scripture doesn't say anything against it, but there is a problem with drunkenness. Amen? There's a line to cross, so we need to be careful. And that's why some people's consciences are more sensitive than others. Because God may be putting that specific conviction on their heart to guard them because they may be more susceptible to fall into that sin. Does that make sense? They may have a weakness in their life to which God is guarding them from, so He says, no, I don't want you to drink it. And every time they think about it, they just think, man, that just doesn't seem right. Well, that might be the Lord. The Lord also might be guarding you because of the position you're in. I know a lot of pastors, and I I felt strongly this way, especially being in um, youth ministry when I was in Troy, that I was just no alcohol at all. Why? Why? Because if any one of my junior hires heard that their pastor drinks, what can happen in a junior hire's mind? Right? They, 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 can, they can think, you know, they, they maybe not understand the full issue. And so they might think, well, he goes out and parties, so therefore it's okay. When a friend invites me to a party, I'll go out and party. And they may justify it. But the Lord will lead you in your conscience for a reason. And you need to follow that. And you may have certain weaknesses that other people don't have that the Lord is going to guard you against. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's not. In fact, many of the men and women that God have used greatly had strong convictions about concerning matters of conscience. Strong convictions about it. And they abstain from it. And so Paul's saying here, there's not everyone who has this knowledge and their conscience is bothered, it's weak, and and therefore they are defiled. Verse 8, he goes on, he says, but here's the principle, food, food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the, are we the worse. And why does Paul word it this way? Paul words it this way because he, he just said that what the brother who had the conviction against eating the meat in the, that was sacrificed to the idol, had a weaker conscience. And so he says, the food doesn't commend us, for if we eat, uh, neither if we eat are we the better. So if you do eat the, eat the food, eat the meat that was sacrificed in the idol, it doesn't make you any better than the brother who has a weaker conscience. That's what, literally what he's saying. Because that would have been another tendency in the Corinthian church, because they were all competing. So they would say, well, I got the stronger conscience than you, so I'm better. And Paul's saying, no, it's not about that at all. You're missing the point. It's not about knowledge, remember? (laughs) And then he says, um, nor if we do not eat, are we the worse. So those who didn't eat because matters of conscience, they're not worse off. Paul's saying, hey, listen, it's not about what you know. It's about whether or not you follow the leading of the Spirit within you. Verse 9 After establishing this liberty, he says, but beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? 
And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. And so Paul says, listen, you have liberty. This is a liberty you have as a Christian. Christ died for you to set you free from lies and deceit and to set you free from the law. You have liberty in Christ. You can go. Eat the filet mignon. Go for it, you know. But beware, he says. That word beware means to watch for yourself. So whose responsibility is it not to stumble? It's the person who has no conviction about it, right? He's saying you need to beware. You who have this freedom, you need to beware. Watch out. Be mindful. Lest somehow this liberty, in verse 9, of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. That word stumbling, that or in stumbling block that, that Paul keeps using, it comes from the Greek word skandalizo, which is where we get our word scandal or scandalize. And indeed, when someone's offended in their conscience, they feel like they've been scandalized, right? Paul's saying, don't do that to your brother. Don't stumble them. Don't, don't, don't trip them up in this way. And he gives this example in verse 10. And by the way, in verse 10, I don't think he's suggesting you do this, by the way. I think he's giving this as an example of what not to do so you don't stumble your brother. He says in verse 10, For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. You know, one question as I was going through this chapter, and, and as I've thought about this before, uh, and it continually comes up, is, is, is if just because someone has a conviction about something, why does that make it wrong for them, right? You know, like Paul's saying here that it's technically okay. But if we go and we tempt someone or stumble someone, into doing something that's against their conscience, he, he uses very strong words. Like in verse 11, when he says that uh, your knowledge shall the weak brother perish who, for whom Christ died. And when he says to wound their weak conscience, that, that word wound means to strike or to hit. Why is it a sin for that brother to participate in the eating of the meat that was sacrificed to idols and the other brother for it not to be a sin. Well, I've got a question for you. When we live this Christian life, are we to live by the law or are we to live by the Spirit? Spirit, right? And you could say, and, and as you consider this question from the Corinthians I've had many people, and I've done this myself. <laughs> Have you ever asked a question, not because necessarily you wanted to know what was the best thing to do, but because you wanted to know how much you could get away with? Anybody have their kids do that? <laughs> they come up and they start asking questions. Or they just, they're pushing that line, you know. You tell them to do something and they, they kind of procrastinate. What are they doing? They're seeing how far they can go, Right? You know, another issue in our culture um, 
that I think is very applicable is the issue of modesty as well. And I'll never forget when I was um, in the junior high pastor, we would go on these mission trips and we would always, always, before we went on these mission trips, we would always have to make up a list of things and, and kind of a guideline of clothes that couldn't be worn. <laughs> and one of the things that uh, I'll never forget the junior high or the, the senior high pastor's wife um, told, told the, all the girls, she said, listen, if you have to come up to me and ask, just assume that it's not modest enough. Because when you come up and ask, what are you saying? You're, you're seeing how close to the line you can get, right? And when you're seeing how close to the line you can get, which way are you going? Are you trying to go towards holiness or are you trying to go away from it? You're definitely not trying to be more holy if you're trying to get as close to the line, right? Because if you're walking towards the Lord and you're pursuing Him and you're, and you're trying to do as Peter says, to be holy for I am holy, you're not going to be like, well, what's really okay? Can I go this far? Because then you're going in the opposite direction. Does that make sense? <laughs> you're not going towards holiness. You're not pursuing the Lord. And so in some ways, these questions can just have the wrong heart and wrong motive from the very start. And that's why Paul corrects them from the very start. And he says, listen, it's not about knowledge. It's about love. It's about walking in love. It's about walking according to the leading of the Spirit. So if the Spirit is convicting you to do something or not to do something that you see your brother or sister doing in freedom and without any uh, sense of regret or repentance, and it's not something that God's Word explicitly and directly says is or isn't okay, then just follow what the Lord says. Don't go against your conscience. Sure, pray about it. Ask the Lord to lead you and guide you. But here Paul is saying, listen, you're going, you can destroy your brother because of your freedom. Why? Because you're going to destroy their conscience. You're going to destroy the leading of the Spirit. You're going to cause them to sin against the leading of the Holy Spirit and the, and the voice of the Lord in their own life. To go and do the thing that you're doing. In verse 13, Paul says this. Look there with me. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. I love this verse. Because Paul really nails it with his example, doesn't he? Now, I don't know about you, but I'm a carnivore, okay? I don't like, like, I eat them because I know they're good for me, but that rabbit food that usually comes in your meal before the steak, like, I kind of just gut through that, you know, the salad. Sorry if you really like salads, but I, re I really want the steak afterwards, right? Or, or, or a nice juicy chicken breast. Man, I just, I love, I love me some, some good steak and, and some good chicken. But look at what Paul says. I got an amen from Cameron back there. But you know, look at what Paul says. He says, If food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Now notice he says if, right? 
So if it does, if it's true, Paul's not saying I'm not going to eat meat. He's saying, but I'm willing to. Why? Because I love my brother. Because I love you enough to forsake my liberties and my freedom for your well-being. That's a beautiful example of love, isn't it? And so often, especially in America, and I think there's a part of it that can be good, but we need to be careful because we are so concerned with our own personal liberties and freedoms, aren't we? There's a part of that that is good. I, I, I'm not denying that at all. But as Christians, we need to be careful because our lives are not about our personal liberties. We understand this, right? It's not about what you can and can't do. Turn with me to Galatians. You'll hit 2 Corinthians and then, uh, and then Galatians as you go towards the back of your Bible. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. In Galatians 5.13, Paul says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So what's the purpose of your liberty? What's the purpose of your freedom? It's to serve one another, isn't it? Don't use your liberties as an opportunity to go and do what you want to do, especially to fulfill the lusts of the flesh. But, but through love, use that liberty to serve one another. He goes on in verse 14, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. I say then, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. So Paul here, he gives us this wonderful principle, and, and it's something that he's referring the Corinthians back to, that yes, you have this liberty, but be careful how you use it. Be careful not to use that liberty and that freedom that you have for your own gain, for yourself, selfishly, and especially for the fulfillment of your own lusts. But use it through love, to serve one another. And he says that, that the law is all fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Therefore, we shall walk in the Spirit. You know, if you think about this, if you want an answer to know what in any given situation as, as to what you should do, ask this question. How can I first love God and second, love my brothers. How can I first love God in this situation? And if that doesn't answer the question, then ask the next one, how can I love my brothers or sisters? Those are the first two commandments, Jesus said. And here Paul says they fulfill all the rest. And he, command, he tells them to, to walk in the Spirit in verse 16. Uh, look down in verse 22 with me of Galatians chapter 5. 
He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against, there is, against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Anytime we have a question as to what we should do, I think the first thing we need to examine is our own hearts in asking the question. Amen? Why am I asking this question? And it's interesting because I am sure just, and I'm sure you've heard this in some form or another. I have it many times. But I'm sure they probably said something similar in Corinth as well, that when the person who had the stronger conviction said, no, we shouldn't eat the meat, the other side probably said something like this, well, you're just being legalistic. You ever had someone throw that in your face? Hey, man, I really think you shouldn't do this. That's not honoring to the Lord. Don't be legalistic. We're not under the law. You know, the interesting thing is, is that the other side of the aisle is also seeking to be under the law as well in their own way. Because what they're saying is, is what is right and wrong? Is it okay for me to do this? According to what? According to a rule, according to knowledge, according to the law. It's the other side of the same coin, but we, shouldn't, we, should, we need to get rid of that coin altogether and just say, you know what? I want to walk in the Spirit. I want to walk in love. I want the fruit of the Spirit. By the way, the fruit, when it says uh, fruit in verse 22, that's singular. And I've heard many commentators and many pastors say that the fruit of the Spirit is love and all the other things that are after it. When it says um, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, those are all a description of love. The singular fruit of the Spirit is love. And so as we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we see Paul really hits this on, the nail on the head, doesn't he? He says, listen guys, it's not about knowledge. It's not about limiting yourself or, or freeing yourself to do what you want to do. It's about living according to the Spirit. It's about walking in love. And Paul says, I, I would give up meat if it meant loving my brother better. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you so much for your love. And Lord, as we consider the cross, we, we clearly see that you didn't take what was rightfully yours when you came on this earth. You didn't deserve to die. Lord, you didn't deserve to suffer. You didn't deserve to be in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights without food and then to have Satan come and tempt you with bread. But you still said that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Lord, we thank you for your example. 
Lord, and we thank you that, that you are so loving and so kind and so patient and you bore with our weaknesses and you continue to bear with our weaknesses. Lord, we ask that we would take your example seriously and to heart, Lord, that, that we would see you are the greatest example of this. You gave everything. You came down from your throne for us. How much more can we give up our little freedoms to live for you and to live for love for an eternal reward? Thank you, Lord, for giving us purpose. Thank you for giving us meaning, Lord. And, and we thank you that we don't have to live bickering and fighting with one another and competing with one another and fighting for our freedoms, but we can live with one another and we can build each other up instead of puffing ourselves up. So, Lord, help that to be our attitude. Help that to be our heart. We love you so much and we thank you for your grace and your goodness. And in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.